welcome to the Bader-Meinhof podcast. I am Richard Huffman, and you are listening to the only podcast devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Bader-Meinhof group. Um, we talk to people that are either directly or tangentially related to the Bader-Meinhof group, West German terrorism of the 1970s, or any other thing that seems kind of related. And today we have a really special podcast. Um, I interviewed Dr. Sarah Colvin, who's a professor um, and Udo K. Mason Chair of German at the University of Edinburgh in the UK, and she just published a new book called Ulrika Meinhof and West German Terrorism, Language, Violence, and Identity. And as somebody who's read every single thing there is to read about the Bader-Meinhof group, in the English language at least, um, I can tell you this is definitely one of the most important and best books you're ever going to find for understanding and contextualizing uh, the Bader-Meinhof gang, the, their, uh, especially their language and how their language developed um, over time. Um, it's, it's a really amazing, important book, and it was a really terrific interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I had uh, conducting the interview. We are speaking with Professor Sarah Colvin from the University of Edinburgh in, in the UK, whose new book about Ulrika Meinhof is Ulrika Meinhof and West German Terrorism, Language, Violence, and Identity, and it explores the journey of Ulrika Meinhof through her earliest writings, through her concrete columns, her writings on behalf of the Red Army Faction, and her prison writings. Um, it's a very welcome addition to the extremely slim canon of Red Army Faction-related scholarly writing in English. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me, Sarah. You're very welcome. I'm glad to. So tell me, a, tell me briefly about what got you interested in this particular subject. It began, in fact, I was working at the time on German-language drama by women, so any kind of dramatic text, and a friend of mine in Germany sent me um, a videotape of Meinhof's TV drama Bambula, which was first... Um, programmed in Germany in 1994 um, because, of course, as you know, it was banned when it first appeared because Meinhof had then just been arrested as a member of the, the brand-new, newly-founded Red Army faction, which didn't even have its, had its name yet in 1970. So it was that. It was watching this kind of fascinating piece of documentary television and starting to get a sense of what produced it that made me absolutely certain the next thing I was going to do was uh, work on Meinhof. Wow. One, one of the things that I um, immediately appreciated about your book is that it wasn't beholden to a specifically idealized version of Meinhof. So much about um, her seems to be clouded by people's either conscious or unconsciously putting her on some kind of pedestal. Mm -hmm. um, and yours didn't do that, and I really appreciated that. And did you find it challenging? I, I mean, you, you obviously read a lot of analyses of, of her by others. Was it challenging to kind of parse through that notion? Because I, I found, and I have not done the reading you have, but I found that so much of when I'm reading it, I have to kind of figure out what the writer's personal biases are, yeah. and often it's very pro Meinhof as this kind of otherworldly martyred heroine and sort of uh -huh. balance out my own thinking on it. It, it, it. Was this a challenge for you, or how did you think? Because, um, you know, you're coming at it from, I think, kind of a more, I guess, more up-to-date perspective that puts a little more balance on the issue. Well, it was a challenge. I think, you know, having seen your work on your book, um, I think this is where we are in a similar place. It is a challenge to try and find a calm and dispassionate perspective. 
And in my book, I'm, I'm absolutely not trying to demonize Meinhof either. It's not about that. What I'm trying to do is find a way to understand um, what happened for her and what happened in West Germany. And certainly, I agree with you absolutely, there are all kinds of myths out there. And they're myths that fit with what I think, you know, are popular cultural beliefs, like, you know, a good woman is a good mother. Um, and so my husband, for example, Klaus Heinerer, was very keen to project in the media an image of Meinhof as a good mother because that was one way of rehabilitating her in the public eye. I was very interested to see the opening of the, the Bader Meinhof film last year, where if you remember, the first image of Meinhof we see is of her on the beach with her children coming out of the sea and she's wrapping them up in towels and looking after them and clearly being a very good mother. Um, and interestingly, then we see an opening image of Gudrun Enslin, who is often kind of cast as, as the bad woman to Meinhof's good woman. Um, and she's smoking a cigarette and watching television while her baby cries. <laughs> so the kind of, you know, the good mother, bad mother thing. And, there's, you know, there are other elements, as you say, the martyr, um, the Joan of Arc figure, um, all kinds of ways in which one can kind of try and show that a woman who's been violent um, is nonetheless kind of historically excusable. And there is, I think, you know, in, in some people's minds, a, a will to find that um, for Meinhof. But, you know, not in, not in everyone's. There's been some pretty negative reception of her, too. And that's where one, again, has to try and find a balance. You know, she wasn't a demon. Yeah. Um, she was a person in a complex situation in, in a very complex period in German history. Um, and my project... Um, which is what I get a sense is your project in your book as well, is, you know, trying to find evidence to help us understand that. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, one, one of the things you, you talked about towards the end of it is this is a subject that I'm really endlessly fascinated with, which is, well, the, the practical history of what happened with Ulrika Meinhof's brain um, yeah. and, and what that is evidence of, of this sort of German fascination of, of finding some biological or some some kind of explanation to explain how this woman and women in general could be part of this violent association it seems mm -hmm. like there's a there's there's not at all a, a, an acceptance that it could have happened somehow as a product of their belief system or something like that it it had to have had a biological or a yeah. or it was some relate or some reaction to their motherhood or something else i yeah. I, I i i find it interesting that even to this day that's still a sort of a dominant thread in that people want to find some other alternate explanation other than what seems to be an obvious reason for why she became what she did yeah, absolutely, and I'm, I'm not even sure I would see that as, as exclusively German. I mean, I think uh, most societies have an investment in keeping women as a secure place, as a place of motherhood, a place of safety. And when women commit acts of violence, um, that upsets that notion and upsets the society's sense of itself rather profoundly. Um, and one of the interesting things I found was, was, you know, German government documentation where they were trying to work out what made the women do what they did. And there's that document called the Bader-Meinhof Report, um, produced in 72 by the German government. Um, and it's going through possibilities, you know, was it because they took the pill? Was the contraceptive pill a reason? And then they realized, well, you know, Enstein had a child, Meinhof had children. Um, it wasn't that. Um, 
so what was it? Was it because they were perhaps lesbians and they kind of ghost the possibility that some of the women might have been having lesbian relationships with them? And if that makes them unnatural, does that make them more like men, which makes them more likely to be violent? It's very, very old-fashioned. I mean, this is a, a set of ideas that goes back, you know, at least into the 19th century. Um, and it's being rolled out again at that time to try and work out, you know, what is it that makes women commit acts of violence? And there is a a real unwillingness to say that it, it you know, may just be political conviction. Yeah. Uh, it I, may just be the same as the men. I've talked to um, a lot of people about what it was like, you know, in 70, I guess 71, when those famous posters started appearing everywhere. Just a, just a lot of ordinary Germans to, to, to see what their reaction, what their recollection of their reaction was. And, mm-hmm. and so many people whether implicitly or they say it overtly or covertly they're they're saying how how when they saw those posters and it was effectively 50% women it uh-huh. was and they were all young it was shocking to them and i sort of mm-hmm. argue that it was sort of alluring to younger folks because it was sort of like these people were living their ideals we talk about gender neutrality gender equality and this was a clear group that was evidence that was it was providing clear evidence that and i figure older german society or more patriarchal german society must have been terrified i mean it seemed like the perfect proof that these people were living this ideal i i I, you know when people talk about how much support although i mean obviously it was a limited kind of support but how much support this group had in like 1971 amongst young germans you can sort of see how you can see how that was possible uh, as evidenced by um, their their gender neutrality and how intriguing and exciting that must have been to young Germans, particularly women Germans. I guess, yes. And it emerged, of course, at the same time as um, second wave feminism was getting established. Um, and so there's an overlap in interpretations of feminism and terrorism and people are asking you know are these two things linked is it part of the same thing um are feminists incipiently terrorists um are women empowering themselves by kind of getting guns sort of having these kind of ersatz phallic weapons um that they're going to use in the same way that there's a kind of fear around the emerging feminism on the other hand i mean one of the things i i looked at very closely and was interested in was how the women in the terrorist groups related to that and one of the things that um, I do bring out in the book which I think hasn't really been looked at before is that Meikhoff was actively anti-feminist when she was a member of the Red Army faction that earlier on when she was a journalist she was quite interested um, and looking into to the women's movement uh, and what was happening but when she's in the Red Army faction she is actively um, offensive about feminism. Um, I'm not sure whether I should repeat in this interview the word she uses for it. it, it it's, it's, it's extremely offensive. starts with a C. Um, and and it, it, it's Bard's favorite word yeah. um, for a woman anyway. Um, and she, she calls it that kind of chauvinism. Um, so there's real anti-feminism there. And I think that there's a bit of a fantasy around that, that there is gender equality. Yeah. Um, in the groups, even though there are a lot of women involved, that there's, well, I would say more there is denial that gender is an issue. Yeah. They simply won't recognize it. It's considered a distraction from the real cause, which is anti-capitalism. Uh, and, and gender simply doesn't feature. And certainly when one 
looked at the correspondence um, in prison between Bayer and Enslin and Meinhof. But it's very bullish and bossy, and Meinhof's job very clearly in the group is to write down the things he says and get it right, and otherwise she's in trouble with Enslin if she hasn't got it right. So there's, you know, I mean, I don't want to push this too far because there's a lot of stuff said and written about Bader as dominant and Meinhof and Enstein as kind of in competition over him, yeah. which is which is a tricky issue, and then you know, almost too much has been said on it. But nonetheless, you know, there is a kind of dominant behaviour there, which doesn't support the notion of of living a kind of gender-free ideal, which is the notion they're trying to push themselves. I think. Yeah, the irony of it was that it wasn't particularly reflected internally. It was it was more people pushing their own assumptions about their group. So. One, you know, so much of the rhetoric employed by Meinhof at early, you know, through the 60s, was was this explicit comparison of, I guess, the current political elite of the time to the Nazi era and uh, fascism. Um, and it ended up becoming like this truism. Like, as you argue in the yeah. book, it, it sort of became self-perpetuating. Early it was sort of, well, they're like Nazis, and quickly it became just self-evident. There wasn't even an attempt to create an analogy. They just were Nazis. And, and for me, I'm struck by you know this current wave of people making overt analogies to the Holocaust here in the U.S. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's mm-hmm. gone nuts. In fact, I, I separate from this Bader-Meinhof stuff, I operate a blog called worsethanhitler.net, and I just I document uh-huh. people making these analogies. And I started it mm-hmm. kind of as a joke because people make them for the dumbest reasons. They'll compare their local planning commission to the Gestapo or something. And, and I just thought it was dumb and inappropriate and offensive. Yeah. Well, over the past couple of months, there's been a real line of conservative commentators making very clear overt references to Obama as Hitler as the, mm-hmm. as uh, and and implying that it's that it's coming um, that that a new Nazi state is coming and and I look at Meinhof and uh, them and and it scares me honestly yeah. seeing the way these people do it because of how she did it and how I'm not sure that I'm I'm sure people were pushing back on it at the time but it very quickly became just self-evident and I don't think you could have convinced any one of her or her cohort that it was anything less than, than an absolute truism after a while. They just, they just made themselves believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right, and this is something dangerous, and this is something to, to watch out for. Um, so I'm glad you're running that blog. I mean, that, that is precisely what happened, that it was repeated so often that what was going on in West Germany after 1949, when it established itself as a state, was new fascism, um, I'm pretty convinced Meinhof coined that term. It's not generally attributed to her, but the first instance I can find of it being used is by her. Um, The notion of new fascism, the notion of Nazism, becomes so pervasive that they come to believe that it is true. And that then becomes, and this is where it gets dangerous, the justification for doing almost anything. Because obviously, if you say this person is Hitler... Was it right to try and assassinate Hitler? Yes, it was. Ergo, it is right to assassinate this person. Um, I become extremely worried when that kind of language is used because it justifies everything to the point of murder. Um, and that was what it was doing for the RAF as well. And, and the irony, of course, is they actually were talking about, unlike like Obama, they were talking about often 
literally former real Nazis, but that yeah. didn't mean their argument held water because um, Germany clearly in, say, 66 was not the second coming of the Nazi state. Yeah. Germany was doing its best. Um, it's not an easy thing obviously, to completely reinvent a society, that you, know, that, that you need experienced people to run a state. And when you have a new state emerging after a period as long as the Nazi period, inevitably some people are going to get through the net. Um, and they did, and some people who were involved at a low level were still involved in the running of the new state. But what were you going to do? You couldn't just discontinue absolutely everyone. And I do think, I mean, there is a lot of evidence that West Germany was doing its very best to deal with the Nazi period, and they weren't doing it perfectly, but that wasn't to be expected. Um, but this discourse of new fascism, um, of Nazism, of Meinhof describing pacifists as the new Jews who are being shut up in ghettos, gets to the point of being really disrespectful towards the people who, who did suffer under Nazism. Yeah. Um, and, mm? Oh, I'm sorry, go, go on. Go on, sorry. No, just, and, and you know, there is... You know, great offence is rightly taken about the RAF's misuse, the Red Army faction's misuse of the notion of of Jewishness and Auschwitz and their appropriation of this vocabulary to talk about what they're doing. Well, I find that I've I found that interesting as well. I've talked. There's a couple um, professors that I've discussed that are that recently have been focusing a lot on West German terrorism's relationship to Israel and and um, anti-Semitism, and, mm -hmm. and I think they're persuasive in that it's not talked about as much, yet so much about what left-wing terrorists did, particularly the Red Army Faction Revolutionary Cells did, was overtly, in a sense, anti-Semitic from, or just a lot of actions from that bombing of the synagogue in uh, Berlin in um, I think it was '69 to the yeah. in Entebbe where the where specifically Carlos the Jackal and the German terrorists were separating Jews and mm -hmm. and um, and 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 I, I guess I'm I guess I find it ironic that so much about the rhetoric about uh, that Meinhof and others espoused was was focused on putting themselves in the role of victims like the Jews, yet actions yeah. were clearly, in a sense, anti-Semitic. They would say, oh, no, it's, we're anti-Zionist, but mm -hmm. in some respects, it's six in one hand, half a dozen the other. They're, they're, they seem to be perpetuating what they abhorred or claim to abhor. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you, absolutely. And I, it, it's, it's awful stuff to read. Um, and one of the most disturbing things, I think, is, is Meinhof's piece on Black September on the um, kidnap of the Israeli athletes at the Olympic Games in Munich, uh, where she ignores the fact uh, that a group of athletes were killed, were kidnapped, um, and focuses entirely. She thinks it's much more interesting that, you know, the West German government has been embarrassed by this that she can show that Israel is in league with the West German government and these are the new capitalists and the new fascists. It's absolutely awful reading. Um, and contemporary German commentators are very upset by it as well, and people like Wolfgang Kausa, who I think is you know, an excellent person on all of this, uh, is extremely critical of that and extremely embarrassed by it. Um, yeah, and I think there's a kind of narcissism that comes into play that's very, very disturbing that you were just mentioning, that they're much more interested in being the victims themselves 
than in actually engaging with the historical victims. The primary interest of the Jews under Nazism is that the Red Army can fa faction can say, you know, that's now us. We in prison are in Auschwitz. Um, rather than a serious historical engagement, um, you know, as, as would be fitting, really. Yeah. So, one thing that, that I, I, I've always been struck by, it seems like um, what the Red Army faction, when they turned their theory into practice, they, in a sense, to a certain extent, hijacked leftist thought in Germany at the time. And it's not that people were necessarily supporting them. It's mm -hmm. that for so much of the early 70s, if you were a leftist, your thoughts had to be presented almost as a, an answer to them. In other words, the, the generalized people would, so much about what they did, you either had to either support them or explain why you were different to them. They kind of mm -hmm. hijacked them, and that seems different than in most other societies. It must have been challenging to be a leftist at that early time because so much was defined by the Red Army faction. And my sense is they didn't have a heck of a lot of support by the general left intelligentsia, at least the way they kind of hoped they did. But it's interesting to me that they, that effectively the left was kind of beholden to them for pretty much a decade. I think the, the left was, was, well, elements on the left were absolutely furious with them um, for, for what was regarded as, as, you know, irresponsible individualistic behavior. And it was a great opportunity for, for, you know, for, for the other political side, for the right to kind of lump everyone together and say, you know, these, these people are, are all in together. It's all the same. So ignore them and vote for us, which I think was very damaging um, for the left. And yes, as you say, I think the, the, the West German left had to invest a lot of energy in differentiating itself um, from the radicals, from the terrorists. But that then kind of changed, interestingly, you know, when they went to prison, when the hunger strikes happened, when Holger Mainz died and the pictures of him in an emaciated state were released, when Meinhof died in prison, when the others died um, in 1977. At that point, there seemed to be a, a bit of a shift again. Um, and there still is now, to some extent, almost a sort of sentimental engagement with it. Um, in some parts of the West German left, which is which is not as critical as I would like it to be. Yeah. Mm. So you know, one of the um, there's obviously parallels between the German situation in America in the early 60s and 70s, specifically with the weather underground, and mm -hmm. and um, and a lot of people ask me about that. They go, well, what was why didn't this happen in America? And I will uh -huh. I'll talk about the weather underground, but they were clearly different in the sense that, well, one specific sense that they, after the their accident in, I think it was New York, they decided we're not going to kill people, we're just going to blow up buildings and stuff. Yeah. So they took this different path. But, but mm -hmm. on a bigger sense, they didn't seem to, um, Americans didn't seem to wrap themselves up in, in language and in theory as much. They, it was more about just... This is the inherent action, and, and in Germany, it seemed that they that they had to spend a lot of time developing a sort of philosophical structure that they that, that a, a, cre a world that they lived in, and then they had to place themselves into that world to do their actions. And in America, it seemed different. I, I don't see a lot of writings about about them constructing this worldview. They may have supported the Red mm -hmm. Army faction's kind of 
thought process, but they didn't. But it, it was more, we see injustice, we're going to do it. And in Germany, it was more philosophical. Is that something inherently German? Am I missing something there? I, I hate to I, fall into that because I, because yeah. so many people talk, oh, Germans are this, and I, and I, of yeah. course, love Germany, but I just wonder why was their, why was their experience seeming to be so focused on philosophy and and yeah. uh, and thoughts like that. Well, I would say spontaneously that um, I suspect American society at the time, even though it was you know not without its problems was more secure in its own identity than German society was. And perhaps, therefore, self-justification is far more of an issue in Germany for any action that is taken than it was in America because of this sense, you know, who are Germans after 1945? Um, How can they describe themselves? They have to make clear that they're not the same as this awful thing uh, fascism, Nazism, the Hitler regime that went before, a lot of energy goes into differentiating themselves from that in words. I guess the American activists are not facing quite that problem. So I do think as well um, that the ideology, um, kind of in inverted commas almost, of the RAF is, is not that complicated. Uh, that I think I read every single one of their theoretical writings and what seemed to come out of it is that the core ideology is that the RAF is right um, and whatever happens the RAF is right um, and if the RAF does something that it's criticized for then that thing becomes right because the RAF is right and this circular um, process is set up um, where you know there's that quote um, by Meinhof it's, it's one of the most striking things she says she's talking about Lenin um, and she says it's not that the wrath is right because you can already find all that in Lenin. It's that Lenin is good because he says, says the same things as we do. Um, so, you know, someone you would think would be an exemplary figure for them um, and a theorist they would follow. And she's saying no, it's not that, that we follow Lenin because we think he's right. It's just that Lenin happens to say the same things as the wrath does. So that makes him OK. So uh, Lenin, Lenin follows us, effectively. So Lenin follows us, essentially. Uh, and that seems to become the core ideology, the core belief of the RAF. What the RAF think is right, what the RAF experience is true. And that's where things start to get very, very dangerous, because everything they experience is true. Therefore, there is an absoluteness in their rightness, and there is nothing to hold them back from performing any kind of act of violence that they want to, from telling people that it's good to kill policemen. Um, the RAF is right. Yeah. And every, every single argument turns around and comes back to that. And as a, as a kind of correlation to that, um, everything said or done by anyone who is not a part of the RAF is wrong. Hmm. Um, and it's that basic, so- I think. So I'm I'm struck by how much um, of the rhetoric um, in the statements of the Red Army faction, you know, assumed to have been written by Meinhof, were overtly a put-down of general leftists. Um, I mean, it's aggressively, it's directed towards them, and it's aggressively putting them down, yet so much of their support system was the same leftist, particularly in the time on the run, providing homes and safe houses. It seems Mm -hmm. like an, an odd relationship to perpetually scold these people that effectively you depend on for your greater support. What are are your thoughts on that? 
um, remarkable arrogance um, that you see replicated actually in their interaction with their lawyers when they're in prison. I was absolutely stunned sitting in the archive reading what they wrote to their lawyers to see how much time they spend telling their lawyers off, telling them they're rubbish, um, insulting them in the crudest terms for not getting things done, for not doing it right, for not being the right kind of person, for not having the right set of beliefs. There is a kind of astonishing dynamic um, that, that, that comes into play that, yes, as, as you say, it's starts off with how they treat the left and how they treat those who are trying to help them and goes straight on through to, to their relationships with their lawyers who you'd also think they would depend on, they would be grateful to. Um, and it's most of the time exactly the opposite. Um, and I think it is tied up with this notion which they seem to be managing to communicate to other people that we are right. We're so sure of it. Um, just remarkable. Um, I'm, I'm always also struck by their... They, they seem to take seriously the notion of self-analysis, um, constantly analyzing themselves, yet they seem yeah. completely incapable or seemed at the time of, of actually recognizing their, their actual failures. It's sort of like you're suggesting their self-analysis might accept a few minor failures as part of the greater context that were right, but they didn't seem to recognize that German society or even the fringes of society wasn't lining up to support them. They didn't seem to recognize the flaws in their own logic. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. seemed interesting that so much about them was focused on this kind of self-analysis, yet it was, they weren't recognizing that it wasn't, they weren't actually analyzing anything because they weren't, they weren't being truly critical. And the, the few times when they were critical, it seemed like an interpersonal thing, such as being critical of Meinhof's or so apparently Meinhof planned the, the, the Hamburg um, bombings of the, mm -hmm. of the Springer building. And mm -hmm. it seemed more they were critical there just because they were trying to win brownie points against Meinhof rather than any mm -hmm. true self-analysis. That is right. I think that the, the rule seems to be when one looks at the RAF self-criticisms that one can be critical within the group. Um, and in the book, I used this term, which I borrowed from Jaron Lanier, who I think is very interesting indeed, the, the circle of empathy, mm -hmm. um, where you draw this circle and you put within, inside it the people you are prepared to take seriously as human beings and empathize with. And that, for the Red Army faction, is the Red Army faction. And so in self-criticism, one can engage within that group. What one can't engage is what, it, with, is what is outside it, because what is outside it is not held to have the same human status. So if those on the outside are not lining up behind the RAF, are criticizing them, that is always because they are wrong, stupid, um, capitalist, individualist, don't get it. So it does seem to me, and, and this, is, this is also supporting what you've just said, that self-criticism can only happen inside of this group um, and cannot take account of anything outside it. There, there's a circle um, and that border can't be crossed. Hmm. And that has an effect on the interpersonal relationships as well within the group because they become then, of course, very intense. Because if you only have this very small group of people that you're prepared to engage with, um, and as time goes by, the group gets smaller because people are being thrown out for bad behavior if you don't adhere properly to, to group ideology, then you'll be ejected from the RAF. That's what happened to Horst Mahler. It then happened to Eberhard Becker. Um, so the group inside the circle gets smaller, and the intensity of the relationships and the negotiating of roles within the circle um, gets 
gets more problematic um, because there are fewer people to be dealing with and there isn't a perspective. I think that's, that's kind of what you were saying just now as well, that you lose perspective if you won't engage with the outside. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very similar to how um, I, I was in this documentary that Stefan Aust was in, and he said the same thing. He said these were violent people that had turned essentially bad, and he said that they were lashing out against Germany, but in the end they were a few people sitting in a cell in Stuttgart, and all that intense anger, basically, it had one outlet. They had to turn it against each other. That was his way of explaining the pressures put on Meinhof and, and that led to her suicide, was mm-hmm. this this stuff that they could have turned against all of Germany, suddenly they had one outlet. It was each other, which is kind of sad. T- talk about the current um, fascination, or, or over the past ten years, this sort of popular culture fascination with the Red Army faction, with... Uh, sort of popularizing them in almost a contextualist way. It's sort of become a cool thing to to explore and talk about them. Is this something that you are troubled by, interested in, or is it does does it um, have any effect on your particular scholarship? Well, it's interesting to observe because I, I started this project um, in 2000, which was actually just before the debate between Joschka Fischer and Bettina Röhl, so Meinhof's daughter, um, sort of flared up, which seems to me to have been the beginning of a new engagement with the topic. So I've kind of watched it happen during the time I've been researching um, for my book. And in a way, I think, you know, it's a good thing for the in Germany in particular. Um, it is a process of engaging with the past um, again. After they had to do that, of course, was with the Hitler era as well. And this is something that that arguably, of course, links in with the Hitler era. If one sees West German terrorism as a reaction of sorts um, to that, and we get this notion of you know Hitler's children, which um, Julian Becker came up with and has been quite a popular way of referring to them. I'm not, I'm, you know, I think one has to kind of be cautious of those kinds of popular ways of talking about it, but nonetheless there's a link. And so I think it's a very, it is a very good thing um, that Germany is engaging with its own past, and it's a very timely thing. And it's useful in the current world context because even though West German terrorism is not by any means the same um, as the problems with terrorism that we're encountering at the moment. There are overlaps in the way that terrorist groups define themselves, the way they constitute an inside which is absolutely right against an outside which is absolutely wrong. I think there are interesting things to be learned. Um, and I, I guess that um, the romanticizing of it um, will continue to exist alongside the serious scholarship. You know, there'll be the T-shirts with Meinhof on. Um, and Che Guevara um, alongside uh, a real wish to engage seriously. But you know, there's, there's, there's a glamour attached to it, which I guess is disturbing, which um, isn't a new thing. Yeah, they, um, they but, were but, kind of a unique group in that they were they were celebrity terrorists. They people yeah. knew them by name, and they were fashionable, I guess, in a sense, and, and people connected up with them, like the BMW being the Bader Meinhof Wagen and stuff. Yes. You can, I, I mean, I, I've, my site, which is like a popularizer of stuff about Bader Meinhof-related 
ephemera. It, and it and the the challenge with me and my site is so many of the visitors to my site are clearly fully caught up in the romanticization of this group. And, I, and I'm not trying to disabuse people of that. I'm trying to encourage them to recognize um, the, the damage that this group caused and also recognize mm-hmm. how they are incredibly fascinating, interesting people, but not forget the fact. I mean, I've talked to too many people and read too many reports about the devastation this caused to the families of their victims. And I don't think there's enough sense of that in the people. I, I, I think that my overall takeaway of terrorism and left German left-wing German terrorism is that they didn't accomplish a heck of a lot other than making the society in many ways more conservative, more reactionary in a sense, and certainly made the, and certainly left a lot of families devastated for a very long time. And, and, and I, you rarely read about that. You rarely read people mention the victims of this group. It's as if just, it's like a body count. And that's mm-hmm. sad to me. I don't know if you're aware of that on my site. My dad was actually the head of the uh, uh, he, he was in the U.S. Army, and he was the head of the Berlin Bomb Disposal Unit. And we mm-hmm. arrived in Berlin um, in May, like May 15th, 1970. And we um, left Berlin in, um, I think, July of 72. So he was there exactly at the time of the Bader Meinhof group on the run. And Hi. And my dad actually was the, 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 the active in Berlin at the time was the June 2nd movement. And they yeah. left many bombs that my dad defused that nobody's ever heard about. They left one mm-hmm. at the officer's club where my mom was having lunch that could have easily killed her. They left one at uh, the airport that was specifically designed to kill my dad and his and his uh, crewmates, um, and I, so I, I tried to balance my thought of how, my own personal mm-hmm. fascination with this group with the recognition that had they killed my dad, they would have justified the killing as he is a pig, he is another, yeah. and um, and I, and I would just hope more people would recognize that. And I, I don't want to like lash out at people for not recognizing that, but I mm-hmm. don't think there's a strong enough recognition of how awful terrorism is. And and my only fear of romanticization of terrorism is you forget about the downside. You forget about that feeling you had on September 12, 19, mm-hmm. you know, 2001. Not that I'm like uh-huh. one of those big um, conservative people because I'm a very liberal person, but I just, nobody seems to connect that. No, that's right. And there is nothing good about boycotting, about bypassing the democratic process and trying to make things happen faster by using extreme violence. Um, and I think you know, that there is a romance attached to that, the notion of the revolutionary, the, the sort of angry young man who, who, for very good reasons to do with idealism and wanting to support an oppressed group, will just bypass the democratic process and and do something violent to try to make things better. But the trouble is that almost never does anything good, that people will then cite back at me sometimes, you know, the example of South Africa. And you have to say, you know, the context is so important. And what the Bader-Meinhof group were trying to do was to construct a kind of fictional context that was bad enough to justify them uh, bypassing the democratic process politically and resorting to extreme violence. And I would argue back very clearly that in the case of West Germany, the situation was not so bad. People were not so oppressed. Things were not so dreadful that that was a justified thing to do. It's a very difficult question, you know, the philosophical issue of when is it okay to just say this is too bad to tolerate. We have to do something violent to make things better. But 
I don't think there's an argument to be had about that in post-war West Germany. I don't by any means think that the West German government was pure as the driven snow or that they responded absolutely correctly um, to what happened. And there is much to be learned, I think, by contemporary governments about that as well. You know, what kind of government reaction to violence makes things better and what kind of reaction will actually make things worse? Um, and, And nonetheless, I would, I would defend West Germany as a country that at the time was probably doing its best um, and there wasn't a historical contextual justification for, for the violence that was practiced. I, I, I kind of, um, you know, like a lot of people, you try to see what parallels was the German response. A lot of people called the Bader-Meinhof challenge as like Germany's 9-11. And, and mm-hmm. so you see the cha- the, their response to it. And there's very clear parallels between the modern response to, to 9-11 and German yeah. response in that they had their own war on terror. They yeah. instituted a bunch of laws that didn't seem to really be, the, the, uh, although overtly they were directed towards the terrorist, really it seemed to be laws that seem to crack down on civil liberties and never really seem to apply to terror, mm-hmm. similar to what happened in America. But my sense is now Germany seems to have a more nuanced response. They seem to have understood their own lessons of their own excessive ways um, after um, after the challenge of the running faction. So from my perspective, that gives me somewhat hope in America that maybe we will, we will, we're, we're starting the process of tamping down and recognizing our extremes. But, you know, I don't know. It's hard to know. It's easier for me to look at the past than it is to look at the contemporary situation. I guess that is true for everyone. It's always easy to look back. But, but I actually agree with you. I think, you know, this process Germany has been going through for the last 10 years is very useful. I think that getting away from using a language of war to talk about this can only help because the trouble is that once you say war, you kind of legitimize both sides because that's how we're used to wars functioning in a national interest. Um, Both sides appear to have a certain legitimacy. Um, So you have to get right away from that and talk about it in other terms, um, in other language. And you have to be very careful that you don't replicate the awfulness of terrorist activity in the state response to it because again that is only likely yeah. to make make things worse mm. yeah well i appreciate your time this has been a fascinating conversation i appreciate your book it was it's excellent and um and i'm encourage anybody who's listening to this to you can find a link to it uh for amazon uk amazon.com on my website um it is excellent and i appreciate your time Thank you so much. It's been very interesting to talk to you, Richard. Well, there you have it, my interview with Dr. Sarah Colvin, that rare person who knows more about the Bader-Meinhof group, I think, than even me, and I didn't think that was possible. So I want to thank Dr. Colvin once again for her insightful, excellent book, which you can find links to purchase from my website, and I want to thank her again for her time um, interviewing me. Uh, until we meet again. Bottom line, oh.